Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast for Netflix original true crime stories. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, your host. Each episode, we take a close-up look at a true crime documentary or series, and I talk to the people who made them, digging deep into the backstories and getting answers to questions raised by what we just watched. On the show this week, The Social Dilemma. The documentary drama explores the dangerous impacts of social networking. We tweet, we like, and we share, but what are the consequences of our growing dependence on social media? In the film, Silicon Valley insiders reveal how the wealthiest and most formidable tech companies are reprogramming civilization. I'll be talking with Jeff Orlowski, the film's director. Because of the COVID-19 pandemic, our guest was recorded in his home and not in a studio. And of course, we appreciate your understanding. When you go to Google and type in climate change is, you're going to see different results depending on where you live and the particular things that Google knows about your interests. That's not by accident. That's a design technique. What I want people to know is that everything they're doing online is being watched, is being tracked. Every single action you take is carefully monitored and recorded. A lot of people think Google's just a search box and Facebook's just a place to see what my friends are doing. What they don't realize is there's entire teams of engineers whose job is to use your psychology against you. I was the co-inventor of the Facebook like button. I was the president of Pinterest. Google. Twitter. Instagram. There were meaningful changes happening around the world because of these platforms. I think we were naive about the flip side of that coin. We get rewarded by parts, likes, thumbs up, and we conflate that with value and we conflate it with truth. A whole generation is more anxious, more depressed. I always felt like fundamentally it was a force for good. I don't know if I feel that way anymore. Jeff, thanks so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks for doing this. I'm really interested to hear about your background in filmmaking, because this project is a lot different than other projects that you became known for in the film industry. Yeah. Um, Well, I actually... I was always planning to go into photography. I wanted to be a still photographer. And in college, a friend of mine, um, he and I were talking and I was like, actually, here's the full story. I went into a photo gallery and I saw all of these amazing photographs hanging on the wall. And then I saw a bunch of people come in and just walk through this room so fast, like barely paying attention to any of the photographs. And (laughs) I remember going back to my friend and saying, I'm just concerned that my, my photography won't have enough impact. It's not going to make a difference that people are just whizzing by powerful photography. And he was the one who twisted my arm to get me into film. And I I started taking a film workshop um, in college. But uh, for me, this has always just been a medium to elevate important stories and raise issues. Um, Chasing Ice and Chasing Coral were pursuits because climate change is a huge, huge problem. And I love the outdoors and I love nature, but uh, really the main reason for for doing those films was to show the world a different way to look at climate change. So when I started learning about this subject from Tristan, um, one of our lead subjects in the film, it, it was incredibly clear to me very quickly that this is a huge, huge issue affecting civilization, that the way our programs and our software is written is actually at the scale now where it's programming society. It's not just an app. Um, it really is this invisible puppeteer of, of what humanity is doing. 
Um, and so from that perspective, it was incredibly clear to me that we needed to, that we really wanted to focus on telling the story and figure out how we can do it creatively. Um, I did miss going outdoors during, during the making of this film, however. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm curious because, you know, climate change is a big issue for you and social platforms are a, a big way that information is, you know, reaching the masses right now. And, and probably social media is, is going to be one of the most effective ways for people to learn about important issues like climate change, like the effects of social media. Right, right, right. Um, can you just talk about your relationship with social media before, during and after the making of this film? Sure. I was uh, an incredibly heavy user. I mean, I, I joined Facebook the year it came out. I, I was at Stanford at the time. I think we were the third school to get Facebook. Um, and then so many of my friends went to work at Facebook and Twitter and Google. And I was, I loved it. Like, we all loved it. And I, I was on those platforms really heavily. I was really addicted during the 2016 election. Um, I think the algorithms had figured out that I was very sensitive to um, political messaging. And that's when I really started to learn from Tristan and others, um, other engineers, like how the software is being programmed and what it's designed to do. Um, that's where I started to reflect on my own usage and really see the system and the platform trying to pull me back in. Um, so ever since then, I basically have completely weaned myself off of these apps. I've stopped using all social media. And interestingly, at the same time of making this film and needing the real creative time and energy to be able to focus on the storytelling and leaving them gave me all the more creative freedom and flexibility. Let's talk a little bit about Tristan Harris. He is uh, really at the center of the film and he has had a personal evolution in his own career. Can you just talk about him and, and him as a character and, and what he's trying to do right now and also why you put him at the center of this film? Yeah, Tristan he was working at Google. He he had his own startup company and he sold it to Google and he ended up at Google and he started to talk internally about the problems of the platforms, the way that they are designed um, that is misaligned with humanity. And Tristan really wanted to change the way the, the company worked from the inside and he really tried to elevate his voice internally and that didn't really go where he wanted it to. And it wasn't until he started speaking publicly about it. And then he ended up on a Anderson Cooper 60 Minutes piece. That's when I saw him talking about this. And he was the first person of all the people that I knew in Silicon Valley, he was the first person who was really starting to critique it in a meaningful, kind of fundamental structural way. And uh, he started his own organization, the Center for Humane Technology. And he's really been trying to champion changing the industry from within the industry, trying to work with technologists to change the way that they think about and build their apps. It's interesting to me, you know, he talked about working on the Gmail team at Google mm -hmm. and he talked about the really addictive power of email, which isn't something I think I think about anymore, given all these other platforms. But right, as he right. was talking about just sort of the design of the Gmail inbox, designed to make people engage with it more, designed to make people addicted to it. I found that fascinating. I mean, you're off of social platforms, but have you ever found yourself addicted to even just your email? Oh, my goodness. Well, there have been many times where I've completely stopped using email as well. <laughs> um, that's mostly just because it's so overwhelming. Um, there's another parallel here, uh, which goes back to this bigger question of the way we've designed the Internet to be free. Mm -hmm. um, Jaron Lanier has this, this line uh, that we weren't able to work into the movie, but um, he points out the conflicting tensions at the birth of the Internet. Like, we wanted it to be this you know, um, completely liberal, open, free platform. 
yet at the same time we wanted to like we worshiped our tech billionaires like Steve Jobs mm -hmm. and we wanted it to be free but we wanted it to be massively profitable and where did that lead us that led us to this advertising model that instead of making money directly you make money indirectly um, that turned out to be very very profitable but when you bring that back to emails, there's been a notion that many have suggested that we should be paying for email. Like we pay for regular mail. You have to put mm. a stamp on it for it to go from A to B. Um, if email cost us a penny, right? If you, if you had to spend a penny for every email, so much of your spam would just disappear, right? Like the value of this exchange goes from zero to actually having some value. And I think your inbox would look very, very differently if we actually had to pay for those transmissions. I'm not saying that's, I actually don't know what my personal stance on is uh, for that. I don't know if that's necessarily the right solution, but I'm just sharing this from a perspective of there are so many different ways these systems could be monetized. Um, mm. The way we look at social media right now, you know, Facebook and Google and Twitter, we've just all become accustomed to these being free platforms in exchange for what we think is just like a little inconvenience around the advertising. Um, but how is it that these free products have become worth hundreds of billions of dollars, right? These are some of the most valuable companies in the world. And how are they making all of that money off of something that they're just giving away for free? There are many other ways that they could monetize. They could be um, we could be paying for subscriptions. People with huge followings could be paying based on how many followers they have. There are lots of other ways that we could do it. But I, I think that they've gone down this path because they have calculated that they can make more money this way, mm. that it's actually more profitable for them to give it away for free just to get as many people in the door and then to turn that into a monetization machine as opposed to a fair exchange of value where we, the customer, are are paying and exchanging for what we get. Right. And as you point out in the film, as many of the people in the film point out, and as we hear all the time, we are the product. Right. If you're not paying for the product, you are the product. And exactly. that is a, a, a simplification um, in many ways. But when you think about it, because their business model is advertising, the only way that they can get more money is to keep us on the platforms more and to keep us more engaged and to figure out more, quote, relevant um, things to show us. And, you know, honestly, if it if somebody's trying to sell me sneakers and I love sneakers, like that's that's not a huge big deal, right? That's not right. in my mind the the end of the world. It's not the advertising that's the problem. It's the incentive to keep me coming back so that I see mm. more ads. That's the problem, right? The incentive mm. is misaligned. So what these algorithms have done is that they figured out for each and every one of us what's going to keep us coming back. That's different for everybody, right? That's different for a, a teenage girl on Instagram. Um, that kind of a feedback loop that's created there is completely different for than a, you know, a political junkie in an election year, right? Mm. Um, so I was finding in 2016, I was seeing um, friends of mine being split on the primaries between Bernie and Hillary. And, and just the vitriol that I saw rising to the surface between these two candidates. Um, and then seeing that sustained throughout the actual election. Um, we have created these machines that give people a customized worldview. And that that's where I think the biggest concern is. Like we've moved away from a shared reality, a shared truth. There is no shared truth anymore. There's no concept of a shared truth anymore. Everybody's being fed their own personalized news. 
and personalized news just seems like that's such an oxymoron. That's like so contradictory, right? Like there's that's right. Like the, you're getting your own spin, your own take on quote unquote truth. And if we continue, just extrapolate out. Like what does that look like another five years from now, another ten years from now, when? People can't even, we can't even have conversation. We can't converse around how do we address the problems that we need to address because my reality is so completely different than your reality. I'm a lifelong Star Trek fan, and I just keep thinking about, mm. you know, Gene Roddenberry's vision of how we would interact mm-hmm. with technology in the future. And so much of the technology in, you know, the Star Trek universe has has uh-huh. come to happen. I mean, we're, we have communicators. Yeah. We are constantly connected to right, computers. Right. We have information on demand. You know, um, we don't have holodecks in our workplace, but who knows? That could be happening someday soon. And that vision was really precipitated on a humanitarian uh, way of existence, right? In the Star Trek universe, there's no money. There's oh, there's no war. There's no, I mean, except with alien you know, species, but there's no, <laughs> everything is kind of for the good of mankind. That it, that was like right. the Roddenberry vision, this like integrated, right. equal society. Watching your film and, and listening to you talk just now, I just kept thinking to myself, like, what would be the incentive for human beings wired the way we are to build a world like that? Like, do you have any hope <laughs> that we could get we to could. a place like oh, that? Oh, absolutely. I, uh, yes, absolutely. Um, uh, Okay, so so many thoughts on this. Um, we we have a line in the film from from Jaron, and it's an abridged version of what he said in his interview. And it was one of those things where I just like I wish I could have gotten more and more of it into the film. But we were talking about optimism and pessimism, and he said, "You know, so many people call me a pessimist," and I'm like, "I don't get that. Like, I'm not I'm not a pessimist. I'm an optimist. I'm critical because I believe these things could be better." It's the complacent people. It's the people who exist in the status quo who think this is as good as it gets. They're the pessimists. Mm. They're the ones who think this is this is the end game. And and that just hit me so hard when he said that because I, I think for himself, for all, so many of our subjects, this is certainly how I feel. I'm I'm critical of these technologies because I believe they could be better, and. And I know they can be, and I know that we need to build the demand to get them to become better. So Facebook and Google and the, these platforms, they've all created this digital model of us, right? That's what the data collection is all about. That's what the surveillance is about. They collect all as much information as they can, and they create a, uh, a digital model. And we, we try to anthropomorphize that in the movie. And that model is what they're testing on constantly um, and, and that model is incredibly powerful, right? This is a reverse engineered version of who you are as a human. I want that data to exist about me, and I want my doctor to have that data, and my, I want my doctor to know all the things that I might be vulnerable to and to help use that model of myself to guide me towards better health. I don't want my insurance company to have that model and to base my insurance rates on where or not I'm vulnerable and what kind of illnesses and the probability of me getting fill-in-the-blank disease down the line, right? Mm. And your ability to I pay, want that model. Like, like, like layering it over. And my ability to pay, right, yeah. exactly. With the financial model of what's your capacity and what's your likely income down the line. Absolutely, they have all of that. Uh, they, they, they can factor all of that in, right? So right now, the way the Google and Facebook and Twitter models work aren't designed to help improve our lives. They're, they're designed to what's going to get us to come back and stay on the platform, and then what can they continue to show us that makes them money? Like th- that's how the model's being used right now. And that's what's made them an incredibly huge amount of money. 
And, and it is, we use advertising business model as a shorthand. It is a micro-targeted, surveillance-driven advertising model, right? So it is identifying you and uniquely you. This is not like a billboard that's on the side of the highway that everybody drives by and we all see the same thing. This is a billboard that exists in, in basically an infinite number of places on your on your technology that follows you around, that's customized just for you, that's placed at the right time and place when you're most viable or or interested in or vulnerable actually to see an ad and to be swayed by that. That's what the, these companies are selling. They're selling a greater chance of being effective on you than the billboard on the highway. Hmm. I'd love to hear about your decision to, as you say, anthropomorphize this model. You you have a dramatic component to this documentary. It sort of cuts away from the documentary mm-hmm. to these dramatized scenes of this family. And then, of course, we have Pete from Mad Men sort of tweaking the formulas. Yeah. <laughs> I always, always talk about uh, Vincent Carthizer that way. It's Pete from yeah. Mad Men sort of tweaking the formulas to maximize the impact on you know the user, this teenage user in this uh, dramatized yep. version of this family in your story. New link. We're on. Follow that up with a post from user 0790442388820. Rebecca, good idea. GPS coordinates indicate that they're in close proximity. He's primed for an ad. Auction time. Sold. To Deep Fade Hair Wax. We had 468 interested bidders. We sold Ben at 3.262 cents for an impression. Why did you make that decision to to break format in this and, and include those dramatizations? Yeah. Um, so just as we were talking through this digital model, like we just spent the last couple of minutes uh, where I was really trying to explain as best as I could what this digital model means and what it looks like. And I think that only scratches the surface of like what's actually going on. And I tried to take this whole concept and and to visualize it and to bring it to life and to give audience as a way to think and see and feel and understand what's actually going on. So the this whole concept really formulated from this question of what's hiding on the other side of your screen. Like what what's going on in that code that is completely invisible to us. Um, and as I learned more and more from the engineers and the experts that we met uh, while making the film, we started to understand it and see it in a different way. And every time I picked, every time I saw a notification coming in from social media, I was like, why is this here right now? Like, what do they, who, like, why did the algorithm think right now to send me this particular piece of content? And let me, let me just fill you in one more thing. Cause as I was removing myself from, uh, from my social media platforms that, that had me really hooked, I learned from our subjects about this thing that they call resurrections. So, um, you know, at Facebook and other companies, if you stop using the platform, they try to resurrect you. And that's the language that they actually use, like bring you back from the dead mm. to get you back onto the platform. And the algorithms will figure out on their own. This is not like a human that's trying to identify this. This is an algorithm trying to figure out what could I send you at what time that's going to get you to come back. And so for a while it was sending me email notifications. And then it was like, oh, these friends posted this thing. And then it was a text message coming in. And then it was like all of these, I could feel the evolution of the resurrection algorithm just trying to get me to come back, showing me photographs of former relationships, right? Former partners and seeing them with their happy life. And I could just, I started to get really upset every time I saw these things. 
in that I, I, felt I could see the manipulative nature of these algorithms trying to get me to come back to the platform. You, you were talking about the vitriol that you saw during the 2016 election. Of course, that's not hasn't gone away. But we also, you know, get a hint in your film and, you know, something that I've read about elsewhere, that part of the algorithm of these platforms is being able to gauge the mood of the user. So what I'm wondering is, is vitriol incentivized on these platforms? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Great question. So there are a handful of different ways that they know our mood and our energy. Um, And this is uh, through human input and then through algorithmic surveillance and a variety of ways. And when you think about it from Facebook's perspective, when you think about it from the advertising perspective, um, we can more effectively sell you a product um, if we know your mood at the time. Um, Facebook notoriously advertised in Australia um, that their their Facebook Australia team was advertising to advertisers that we know when on a woman's cycle she is mm. and her mood op like her mood shifts over the course of of uh, uh, over a, a cycle and can <laughs> leverage that information to better target advertising. Wow, that's really sexist. I mean, that, in addition to being creepy, it's so. <laughs> So creepy, so messed up. I want to put a bunch of expletives in the sentence. It's like it's just disgusting. And yet this is something that they were promoting, in fact. Um, and it's kind of mind boggling when you when you look back and you and you think, wait a second, what what do they know about us? So when they went from the like button to the full slate of reactions, it went from one type of engagement to now I can tell them literally, this makes me angry. <laughs> this makes me happy. This makes me laugh. Right. And so those reactions just gave a huge additional layer of the types of um, response that these platforms, uh, that the, that the um, models can collect about you. So one of the big things is that we've learned that anger and outrage is sort of the digital currency of these tech platforms. Um, those emotions go viral stronger than almost any other emotion. And and I've heard uh, I've heard that Facebook actually is actively working to throttle that back. It's not just let all anger run rampant. Um, so I, I do want to give them some credit for that. But here's one of the challenges. It's like I only heard that through somebody who is an insider who got me some very specific information. Um, this is not public, right? Nobody knows. Nobody has access to how the Facebook algorithm works. We don't actually know what the code is. So you have a private company with private algorithms that are literally controlling the information that every single person who's on these platforms is seeing, yet we have no transparency into it. Um, it, this brings up a slightly different point, but I, I feel like we need a department of algorithms mm. where we need some sort of national or international governing body that has third-party um, there are people that do algorithmic review. Right. Um, Kathy O'Neill, one of the women in our film, like she goes and she can look at the code and study, like, is there bias in here? What is this doing? For what reason? And this doesn't mean that, you know, we need to make the code public to everybody in the world, but we need to have some sense of review around, like, are there problems embedded in these algorithms in this code that the programmers aren't even aware of? So let's get some, like, fact checkers to take a look at it and mm-hmm. see and, and make sense of, is this good code or not? Mm-hmm. 
Now, Facebook has you know, announced they are trying to make some reforms around the upcoming election, right. uh, misinformation, right. interference. They say they plan to block new political ads that will try to dissuade people mm-hmm. from voting. They've claimed to bring on lots of human beings to look at content, to vet content. How do you feel about these changes? Do you have any hope that they're going to make a meaningful difference in terms of the content part of delivery? I mean, these are all... It, these are all band-aids that don't acknowledge the fundamental underlying problem to the whole thing. And until they actively move to shift the business model and change the way that the platform is, is constructed, um, these aren't going to make a big difference. When you look about where is misinformation and conspiracy theory running rampant, right? It's happening on YouTube and Facebook and Twitter um, and on TikTok now and countless other platforms, right, um, on, on the web. It's not happening on uh, Hulu and HBO and Netflix, other content-providing platforms. Mm -hmm. And one is uh, created by user-generated content um, and has a business model that incentivizes the engagement. The other is a subscription model. This other category are all subscription models with human curation. And this is something where I, I don't have you know, set answers on this. I don't know what the proper, proper solve is, but I just want to point out these two different ways of looking at the world where at these entertainment companies that are making videos and films and documentaries and and lots of content, there are humans that are engaging with all of those um, pieces of content that are going on to your HBO or your Netflix or your Hulu. And, and, YouTube isn't operating in that way. And it's mm. it's one of the things that made it really, really powerful, but it's the thing that's making it really, really problematic now. So between user-generated content and the advertising business model and no editors, basically, right, just the automated nature of all of it, it's gotten us into the sticky place. Right, right. And you, I think you pointed out, you know, one of the arguments the platforms might make is that all these great connection platforms that incentivize human interaction, human to human, there's a digital divide there. I mean, not everybody can pay for six different platforms. And what they would say is, mm-hmm. we're giving it to you for free. And we want it to be available to everyone. And, of course, there are all these consequences. And you um, you touch on those. You talk about you fake news. You talk about tech addiction, election hacking, polarization, uh, depression, all of the sort of consequences of this. Is there one that concerns you above all others that you think this is the issue we have to address first? Yeah. For me, the biggest concern is political polarization. Hmm. There are countless individual impacts and effects being had and rising rates of uh, of suicide and self-harm, in particular amongst young girls. That is a huge, huge concern at the individual level and, and, and how that's shifting our society as a whole. So... Those consequences, the mental health consequences are really, really big. But the political polarization consequences are the ones that frighten me because if it puts us – I've been thinking of this on, in evolutionary terms lately, and I've, I've been working on this analogy, and it's still a little rough in places. But when you think of like the Galapagos Island and when species move there and then they evolve and then they are – they become unique species and they are separate from the mainland, Right. In what we're seeing with our technology now, it's as if each of us, uh, a line from Roger McNamee in the film, each of us has our own Truman Show version of reality being shared back to us. Over time, you have the false sense that everyone agrees with you because everyone in your newsfeed sounds just like you. And that once you're in that state, 
it turns out you're easily manipulated, the same way you would be manipulated by a magician. Magician shows you a card trick and says, pick a card, any card. What you don't realize was that they've done a setup. So you pick the card they want you to pick. And that's how Facebook works. Facebook sits there and says, hey, you pick your friends, you pick the links that you follow. But that's all nonsense. Just like the magician, Facebook is in charge of your newsfeed. Hmm. We're each ending up on our own individual islands. And the more we engage with the algorithms, the faster it shows us more and more content. It's almost like we're reproducing faster, like we're generating new generations quicker and quicker and quicker. So they evolve faster. So this is this could be great if we were all in one shared conversation, but now we're all being pushed to lots of different conversations. And the ability for somebody on the far left and the far right to engage becomes increasingly difficult. They're coming at it with different information, different truths, different um, different backgrounds on an idea, and coming into it with even more deeper um, deeper stances and and resistance to hearing the opposing side, and that that frightens me from the perspective of a country um, that is a a United States. Um, it is really really challenging to see how this is increasing civil discourse. These platforms aren't designed around how do we address our societal problems. Hmm. Um, and it's only adding fuel to the fire. So that's that's one of the things that has me most concerned. So what about that digital divide? You know, Facebook would argue, as I said before, that their platform is free and not everybody can pay for Zoom and, and buy an iPhone yeah. to get FaceTime. Yeah. So w- what do you yeah. think about that? Um, so many thoughts on this. I, I genuinely think that they re- the reason why they're saying that is because they've calculated that this free model is what makes them the most money, that they are more financially profitable because of it, that if they had found a different model earlier that would make more money, they would have switched to that regardless of the access to everybody argument. So that's, that's one thought. But another thought is that we talk about the subscription model. That's one option where the public is paying for the platforms. But there are a lot of other ways that we can monetize this as well. This could be a model based on people paying based on the number of followers they have. If somebody has 100 million followers, there's a strong incentive for them to keep that follower community. Um, and there are different ways that we can price it and tier it. It could be priced differently in different countries. Um, there are countless ways. I, I just don't, the argument that it's free so it's available to everybody, I just don't buy that. So what are you hoping the impact will be? That What will people walk away with that they didn't have before? I think my biggest hope, I, I think we've all been feeling over the last couple of years in particular how just bonkers our world has gotten, how everything feels polarized, how it feels like so many subjects you're walking on thin ice that it feels like um, it, it's just harder and harder to engage with people in some ways. And my hope is that the film can help provide um, the public with a framing and understanding for um, at least one big reason for why that is the case. Tristan Harris, one of our subjects, he says he hopes that the film could be a shared truth for the public around understanding our breakdown of a shared truth, that this is the reason why we've, um, we've lost the ability or even the framework of a shared truth and that's what's causing so many of the um, the tensions and the polarization that we're feeling. Mm. Um, so I hope I hope that people watch this and and it resonates and it makes sense and it explains like oh 
This is why my Thanksgiving conversations with that family member have gotten harder and harder and harder over the last couple of years, mm-hmm. right? This is why I feel terrible after I spend a couple of hours on my phone. This is why uh, my kids are seeming more depressed and anxious and, uh, and, and what's causing um, them to feel certain ways. We, we have created uh, these platforms that are programming society in the capitalist interests of these companies. Hmm. And these are the consequences of that. When, when we leave a system um, to its own accord with no oversight, with no care and thought around um, the consequences and the impacts, my, my hope is that the public watches it and demands change hmm. and that we change the way we engage on a personal level and that we put pressure on the tech companies to change the way they write their code. And if that doesn't work, we put pressure on politicians to force the tech companies to change their practices. Um, there's research out there that we, we only really can have 150 meaningful close relationships in our lives. This whole notion that you can have 5,000 friends is just a farce. Like the, the idea that you have um, that you're friends with countless people as these platforms are wanting to, to encourage us towards um, that exists right now, because that that's what works best for their business model. If you have 5,000 friends instead of 500 friends, every time you post, you have a 10 X opportunity for more potential engagement 10 X more opportunity for advertising uh, to be seen. So the, the whole growth model of these platforms um, is in large ways uh, structured around their financial incentives. I, I want a system that helps me connect with the closest people in my life and and helps me have better relationships with those people. And I don't need to engage with millions and millions of, of people. That, that's for me personally. And I recognize that there are a lot of celebrities on these platforms that have millions and millions of followers. Um, and it's a a completely different type of relationship there, but many of them are talking about the negative consequences that they've felt. Selena Gomez talking publicly, even just recently, about the the huge mental health consequences that she's felt because of these platforms. These these aren't designed around human connection. Well, Jeff, your film, The Social Dilemma, I think it does help us understand the disease, so perhaps we can start embracing the cure. Thank you so much for talking to me about it. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for all this time. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to director Jeff Orlowski. If you want to hear more of my takes on true crime and how we cover it in the media, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down true crime documentaries, podcasts, and the latest in pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please subscribe to, rate, and review this show and share it with friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for our next episode on Fear City, New York versus the Mafia. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hansdale Sue. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.